welcome back to Standout Medical Careers, the series of conversations with doctors about medical career motivations, choices, challenges and fulfilment. I'm Anita Fletcher. In today's episode, we meet Dr. Fergal Armstrong, addiction medicine specialist and dedicated medical educator. Presented with the statistic that one in five Australians will have an alcohol, drug or other addiction problem in their lives, this is an episode for people across all walks of life. Just before we hear about Fergal's motivations and his compassionate approach to his patients, I need to tell you that if you want notifications of when I release a new episode, or if you want to get a free checklist to help you stand out in medical recruitment processes, you can sign up for my newsletter by visiting standoutmedicalcareers.com.au. Dr. Fergal Armstrong is a general practitioner, addiction medicine specialist, accredited Maytod trainer, as well as the CEO and co-founder of Meducate, the pioneer in tech-based medical training programs for healthcare professionals. As well as living and breathing medical education, Fergal enjoys working with all types of patients. Passionate about pharmacotherapy and drug and alcohol addiction treatment, he specialises in educating physicians on how to identify patients at risk of addiction and how to manage those patients effectively and with compassion. Hi, Fergal. Thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm very well, Anita. How are you? Great. Really well. Thank you. Um, could we please start with you and your career? Um, and would you mind sharing with listeners what led uh, to becoming an addiction medicine specialist and also pursuing your interest in different activities in, in educating doctors? Yeah, so I think if I can reflect back on my original decision to get into addiction medicine, I am a, an inveterate collector of tickets. I, I am a perfectionist. I constantly strive for external validation by certification. That's my own personality flaw. So a friend of mine years ago said to me, hey, Fergal, do you want to do some extra training? It's free. I said, yeah, great. Let's do some extra training. It gives you a ticket, doesn't it? Yeah. And he said, but it's an addiction medicine. I said, I don't care. Let's do addiction medicine. I'll do the training, but I won't do the practice. Because at that time, I, I worked in a, in a general practice in the United Kingdom that absolutely shunned all things to do with addiction. But, you know, the offer of free training and a certificate at the end of it all was just, you know, it was, I just had to do it. So anyway, I did the training and I fell in love with the subject. And then I realized I had to do something. I, I, I could not run away from this because I really enjoyed the subject. Uh, it's the perfect mix of neuropsychopharmacology, psychology, sociology. And, you know, it, it really makes you connect with your own humanity and that of others. So I got a part-time half a day a week gig in a criminal justice funded scheme, providing opioid replacement therapy to people who were on their last chance before they were being sent to prison. And I'll never forget the one of the very first patients that I ever saw, he was brought in by his mother, by his ear hole, literally pulled in by his ear hole. 
His mother said to me, he sat him down and she stood behind him and she had tears in her eyes and he wouldn't look at me. And she said to me, Dr. Armstrong, I will pay you privately if you work harder to keep my son out of prison and if you get him stabilized and cure him of his heroin addiction. And I said to her, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll do my best for your son, irrespective of whether or not you pay me privately. I, won't, I can't accept any fees because I'm, I'm employed by the government, but I'll do my best for him. So I started him on, this, on, on a relatively new drug. It was relatively new at the time, and perhaps I'm showing my age. And it was a drug called Subutex. And I started him on Subutex, and within three days, he'd stopped using heroin. Within two weeks, he'd moved back home. Within four weeks, he was working unofficially for his father in his father's business. And within six months, he was paying taxes. And I thought to myself, well, addiction's easy. Why doesn't everyone just go on, on uh, Subutex? It's easy. That one early success has sustained me through many a, a night of soul searching about wondering whether or not what I do in life is actually any good for patients. That one early success has kept me going. So that's why I, I kind of have an interest in addiction medicine. Why I had the opportunity of becoming an addiction medicine specialist was because I, I fell in with the right crowd. Uh, there was, there's a couple of key players in, in uh, Victoria in, in addiction medicine specialist training services in Victoria. And there was one gorgeous lady called Kerry Alexander who took me under her wing and mentored me and got me into the training program. And then I was really lucky to work with uh, the people at Turning Point. And Turning Point really did nurture my, my uh, desire to become a specialist. And they really helped me um, to you know, overcome all of the academic hurdles that, that were necessary to achieve um, you know, fatum status. So if it wasn't for Kerry and it wasn't, if it wasn't for the people at Turning Point, I wouldn't be where I am today. And I owe them a, a great gratitude, of, a great debt of gratitude. Mm -hmm. why, do I, why do I do all of the other stuff in terms of you know, doing this educate stuff and the online education? Well, firstly, it's because I don't play golf and I have a very uh, long-suffering and tolerant wife who allows me to spend hours at my computer. And secondly, because I, I, I'm, I've always struggled with, with um, what I perceive to be substandard educational material. And I always promised myself that when I was in a position to impart knowledge, I would actually do it properly. So those are the reasons why I do Meducate. Yeah, great. Thank you. And, um, and so could you tell us a little bit more about Meducate and what kind of materials are on there and who uses this platform? So Meducate started off because a friend of mine and I were having a drink by a, at a campfire. And I said to him, I've always wanted to do an online teaching service where I can teach people my, my expertise. And he said to me, well, he'd always wanted to work doing the technical aspects of an online educational service. I said, well, why don't we do it together? And so mm -hmm. we shook hands and that was in 2018. And you know, we've, we've been working at it ever since. Um, in terms of what we do, so primarily, you know, I'm a, a GP with, uh, and I'm also an addiction medicine specialist. So a lot of our stuff is about um, addiction medicine in, in its broadest sense. But I also have an interest in lifestyle medicine. So we, I work with a, another gorgeous doctor called Dr. Savina, and we do a lifestyle podcast as well. And we have a, we have a kind of a separate 
podcast called Medheads, which you've been involved with. Um, and that's just a general, you know, anyone who wants to come on and chat about anything that's interesting to them, you know, I'll, I'll chat to anyone. One of the things that I really enjoy about uh, chatting to experts is you can chat to any expert on any subject and whatever they say is fascinating because they individually have a knowledge and a passion for their chosen field of, of, of expertise. So it's always a joy to talk to people and you always learn something. You, you, may, not, you may not agree with what they say entirely, but you always learn from them. Yep, great. Thanks, Virgil. And uh, and I would like to sort of move across now and ask you some questions about addiction um, specifically and um, what you think can be done to, to help people so that to increase mm. awareness really and understanding why people out there. Uh, and I'll disclose a bit of a personal interest in this topic had a few people, uh, quite a few actually in my life close to me who've experienced addiction of one form and another. And I'm sure that most people are in the same boat, um, that they've, mm. they've witnessed the effects and also possibly experienced addiction firsthand. And, um, mm. and I guess, uh, you know, could you please tell us so that people better constitute what addiction is? Um, could you sort of differentiate addiction from what people might call, you know, consider a bit of a bad habit that they need to, to work on? Yeah. So f first of all, you have to acknowledge that it is so common. Um, addiction is not necessarily just substance addiction. It's also process addiction. So there are various psychological issues like gambling, you know, television, shopping, sex addiction. These are still addictions. Um, a very easy way of thinking about addiction is the three R's. Repeated engagement with a rewarding stimulus despite negative repercussions. Repeated mm -hmm. rewarding repercussions. And if whatever you're doing meets those three R's criteria, you've got some form of addiction. So it's really important to, to understand that it's the difference between having a bad habit and having an addiction, I think, is really one of degree. And so because it's one of degree, the boundaries are not very specific. But really, I think it all boils down to the, the um, repercussions, the harm. If... If somebody's behavior is causing them or others harm and they're doing it because it's fun, or at least it was, it started out as fun, well, then there's a problem. And then, of course, the other issue is, you know, um, to what extent is that particular activity legal or illegal? I mean, it's because it's very easy to classify uh, a repeated engagement with an illegal rewarding stimulus as addiction, but it becomes much more difficult to classify repeated engaging with a, a legal stimulus as a, as, as, as a proper addiction, unless you get that really good solid evidence of harm. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, and, and, and another factor then, you mentioned the fun part. You know, I watched the program yeah. Addicted Australia that you were um, a part of that was screened on SBS TV in 2020. And uh, one of the key points that I think really came across from that program was that 
uh, the people who are undertaking this six-month program to, to get on top of their addictions um, had experienced significant trauma in the background. Yeah. So I guess that touches on what you were saying before about it being yeah. such a complex area and, and a lot to do with yeah. psychology and people's life experiences. Absolutely. I mean, nobody wakes up at the age of eight excitedly in the middle of the night thinking, you know what, I'm going to develop a drug problem when I'm an adult. Mm -hmm. No one says that. We all have dreams and aspirations of being football stars, ballerinas, and um, space, uh, you know, rocket scientists. But, you know, the trauma that innocent children sustain can damage them and alter their life trajectory in ways that are so profound and so damaging that it's really, it's, it's, it's truly awful. You know, every, because you know, every time I look at someone who's got an, a, a substance addiction, I have to remind myself and have to think about the innocent victim that is usually, not always, but usually inside that person. Because, you know, it's very often the, the case that I, I see patients who start out in their, their uh, usage of substances. It's fun. It's, it causes euphoria. And that euphoria is an anodyne to their troubled soul, their psychic pain. And it's great whilst you're in control of it. But then there always comes a tipping point whenever, when you lose control and the substance takes, it takes over you. And then that use then becomes compulsive. And then they enter this phase where rather than impulsive use of drugs because it's fun, they then enter, enter this phase of compulsive use because the absence of the drug is so intolerable to their lives. And that's particularly true with heroin use disorder. You can start out with, you know, feeling a heroin giving you a great buzz, but, you know, chasing the dragon, your first use is always going to be the best use. And people's, uh, people escalate their use to tr try and keep achieving that same high. And that means they have to keep using more and more of the drug. And the drug itself has less and less of an effect. And eventually their use is predicated on the fear of withdrawal. And so they're taking the drug to avoid withdrawal symptoms rather than taking the drug because it's fun. And so there's a perfect, perfect example of the transition from impulsivity to compulsivity, which is really a sign of the of, of, of quite severe substance use disorder, in particular with heroin. And um, and you referred to you know people's lives starting out and and having dreams and and. Uh, and enjoying life and I was keen to sort of talk to you about children as well because children are often the bystanders and the witnesses uh, to yeah. the issues that come up through addiction mm. and uh, and you know there's so much stigma obviously associated with addiction so you know I think for children it can be particularly difficult for them to talk about what's happening and it's the effects on them because of that stigma and the sense of shame and mm. um, and that sort of incorrect assumption that everyone else's lives or their friends' lives are fine and they've all got really happy families. Um, wow. what, what do you sort of say um, or suggest that um, can be done for children to help them deal with that because often if they haven't even indicated to a, a closer adult or anyone that they're dealing with these um, situations at home 
it can be incredibly difficult. So would you suggest that maybe it comes through sort of school education and support or are there any other channels that you you know about? So uh, this is a huge contentious issue. And I think there's a couple of points I'd like to make first before I actually answer your question. So first of all, we know that active substance use disorder has the potential to damage children in terms of parental neglect, et cetera. But we also know that uh, patients with substance use disorder don't automatically abuse their children. They don't automatically become bad, uh, bad parents. And they're not certain, they're certainly not bad people. So mm. I think the most important thing is to, is to view this from a, a point of view of needing to help both the parent and also the child. And the best way of helping the child is by helping the parent. And so that means uh, having services that are accessible. Uh, you know, the, 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 the overriding experience of most patients with substance use disorder is rejection. Uh, and rejection from treatment services, which is, you know, when you think about it, absolutely awful. Mm. So our personal engagement with patients, our smile of welcome, our hello, how are you? Good to see you. That simple as it may be, it creates a profound effect on, on, and, and provides the foundation upon which we can develop and build treatment services for patients. And so when we look at a patient, we must not only remember the child that is within them, but also potentially the child that is under their care. And so being able to engage and have that treatment space available to them is absolutely crucial. The next mm -hmm. thing to consider are early intervention programs for childhood development. And so schools and social services have to play a key role in that. And at the moment, we, you know, we're, we're going through a, a, certainly in Victoria, we're going through a major uh, reconfiguration of mental health services. And some of that, some of that allocated money has to go on supporting parents uh, and supporting children. How that's actually going to look at or how that's going to appear in the next couple of years, I don't know yet. But the key thing is early intervention to help parents avoid that trajectory. And that has been shown to, to help children uh, transition from a trajectory of failure, nihilism, self-doubt, self-loathing to one of confidence and being able to be more, uh, more likely to achieve their own, their potential. Children are blank canvases. They're, they are the tabula rasa of our hopes and aspirations. And, they, you know, this, it does work. These, these interventions can help children achieve their potential. Otherwise, they will be blighted. The other thing to understand about uh, the development of drug addiction itself in, uh, in, in children and adolescents is that it's, it's not just about the drug. It's also about the context. So we know that children who have certain behavioral presentations like conduct disorder or oppositional defiant disorder, they are more likely to have problems with drugs. We know that permissive parenting or even absent parenting is more likely to engender in children a problem with drugs. And that goes back to the early intervention uh, programs I was telling you about. In terms of school, we know that anti-drug policies in schools are more likely to reduce drug use 
uh, in children, and so children are therefore more uh, less likely to become addicted to substances. In terms of peers, we know that children who are exposed to drug-using peers are more likely to become to, to engage in problematic drug use. And in terms of academic achievement, we know that academic achievement is is protective against becoming a, a patient with substance use disorder, a drug addict, if you will. And we know that grinding poverty is going to create the, or, or people being brought up in that environment of grinding poverty, they're more likely to be uh, affected with substance use disorder. So there are multiple factors in multiple domains of life that all contribute to the risk of a child developing a substance use disorder. So what I'm trying to say is you can have twins born of the same parents, the same biological parents. They both get adopted, but one gets adopted into a family who's poor, with parents drug using, who are, who are absent in bad schools, bad, bad uh, peer group, you know, grinding poverty. And one is nurtured by well-to-do parents, goes to a private school. One child will become a patient with substance use disorder or is more likely to become a patient with substance use disorder, whereas the other child is more likely to become a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. So I believe that substance use disorder is actually a symptom of social injustice for those reasons. So, Fergal, in the program, uh, you mentioned that despite all of the uh, issues and, and things stacked against people often um, in these situations, that you have a golden rule that there's a possibility of recovery for every patient. And I found it really encouraging and heartening to hear that. Mm. Um, and, and the program showed uh, people going through a treatment program over a period of six months, and that's obviously a very resource-heavy exercise. Um, what do you know that the governments, uh, governments are doing in this area? Do you think that there's enough funding given to these services? Well, first of all, can I just clarify that statement? I think that there is the possibility of recovery for every patient at every engagement with services, which, which I think replaces the or, or puts the onus back on the services to consider how they engage with patients. As I said before, the, the overwhelming experience of patients is rejection. They feel rejected at times, and it's really important for services to... Um, be more welcoming or to be aware of just how their body language, their demeanor influences their, their perceived approachability. In terms of government funding, so Victoria is, is in the, just about completed a, a kind of a mental health review that incorporates substance use uh, management. But I am, I am constantly um, feeling underwhelmed by the level of investment that, that nations, governments put into uh, treating patients with substance use disorder. There, there is a significant amount of stigma still in society, and I think there's a failure to recognize some very basic facts. Firstly, substance use disorders are very, very common. You know, I've heard figures of one in five, one in seven people, you know. And secondly, these problems are treatable. You know, this idea that, oh, they brought it upon themselves, the treatment is just to lock them up and throw away the key. Mm. Well, that doesn't work. 
And we know that um, substance use disorders are not actually a lack of moral fiber. They are the manifestations of a chronic brain disease that is susceptible to relapse and that does require long-term help, just like someone with diabetes mm-hmm. or just like someone with chronic pain. You know, these are other chronic conditions that I spend a lot of time um, dealing with when I'm helping patients. And actually, patients with substance use disorders, I think, are actually easier to treat than patients with type 2 diabetes or patients with uh, chronic pain. It's all about resilience. And this goes back to what I said earlier about you know, the, 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 the damaging effect of trauma in childhood and that that, that, that potentiates or potentially causes the, uh, the ill effects of substance use disorder. All that does in a child is erode resilience. And when we don't have resilience, we, we lose the ability to make proper choices. We lose the ability to make um, rational choices. And we lose the ability to control our impulses and also our emotional state. And when we are highly impulsive with a dysregulated emotional state, we become much more vulnerable to the effects of substances. And part of the treatment program for all patients with all substance use disorders has got to be in some way improving upon or or helping patients develop their own internal resilience, their own internal locus of control. And there's a couple of key components to doing that. Firstly, it's engagement, it's warmth, it's unconditional positive regard, and it's peer group, uh, peer group uh, expression, communication, engagement. These things are absolutely crucial to the vast majority of substance use disorder management. Um, and so how to develop resilience? The answer is less stigma, more resources focused in on these processes that I've just mentioned. Great, thank you. You know, and the, and that's what I think, you know, to me one of the key things is, well, all of those things, but the stigma, starting with the stigma that people mm. sometimes forget that that person who has an addiction is, is a person, that all they see is the addiction and not yeah. not the person behind that. Um, yeah, but, can I just mention something about sure. that? Um, there's a Johan Harry is, a, is is quite a controversial figure, but he did write a book called "Chasing the Scream," I think. But he's also done a fabulous TED uh, TED talk, which is available on YouTube, where he talks about the need for human connection. Mm. So, at a time when you're if you're dealing with a patient with with a loved one who's got an addiction, that person is going to be losing everything for the sake of the drug. And if they lose you, they potentially will find it much more difficult to re-anchor back into society. And the, the hardest thing that Johan Harry said that he had to do was actually maintain a social connection with people that he loved when they were going through addiction. But it's as hard as it may be, it's, it's one of the most important things that you can do for a patient, for a loved one, mm-hmm. is try and maintain some form of social connectivity whilst respecting and protecting their own boundaries and their boundaries. Mm. Well, Fergal, thank you very much for all of that. And uh, it's, you know, inspiring the the work that you're doing and your team are doing to support some of the, the most vulnerable people in our community. 
and and to help other train other doctors to uh, to be better equipped uh, to manage this this aspect of medicine. So thank you very much again. And and how can listeners learn more about you or potentially get in touch? So go onto my website www.maducate.com.au. Great. All right. Thanks again, Fergal. Always a pleasure, Anita. Look forward to chatting with you very soon. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Standout Medical Careers. If you like the episode or think it will be useful to someone else, please leave a review at podchaser.com. And if you've got any questions, let me know on LinkedIn at Standout Medical Careers. And remember, the better you articulate your story, the more you will stand out. 